0: When I was a child, our next-door neighbor had an American flag, and right below it, she had a black flag. I didn't know what it symbolized, but phonetically, I could read it out loud. I could pronounce the letters I saw on this flag. I saw the words, POW and MIA. I didn't know what that meant at the time. I recall one day being in the front yard playing with G.I. Joe's. Isn't it interesting what we give children to play with? I was playing with characters at war. And my mom came out with probably a coffee cake, and she said, honey, let's go next door. I didn't know why, but we went over there, as she had gone over there a number of times before, and we went into the house and sat down over, I can imagine they sat down over cups of coffee and this coffee cake as I play with my G.I. Joes on the floor in the kitchen. The conversation seemed like a normal conversation until all of a sudden I could hear the tears of our neighbor lady. And I looked up, noticing that my mom had reached out and placed her hand on her hands. I didn't know it then, but I had come to find out later in life that this woman's son fought in the war of Vietnam, and never came home. My mom would ask her things like, any news, any updates? You see, he was MIA, missing in action. Now, my entire life, war, has been portrayed in film as hell. In fact, War is hell is etched into my brain like I've seen it etched with ink in the skins of soldiers' fingers. War is hell. And I've seen it through the lenses of photojournalism. I've seen it through the reports of, of, of people on the, on the streets and in the jungles reporting on what they've seen. But war, is hell, hasn't always been the way the Western world has conceived of battle. Before the modern period, there was another way of conceiving war, and that was associated with glory and with honor. It makes some sense to me. In the ancient world, you can imagine a battlefield of armies, men on horseback, clad with armor and Carrying swords and spears, such was the technology of their warfare. And sure, hand-to-hand combat where you may lose your life might be hellacious, but at the end of such battles, the amount of dead in the battlefield, well, it's much more imaginable than the streets of Nagasaki and Hiroshima where entire cities could be laid to waste because of our technologies of war. The imagined pain and difficulty of such battles, it doesn't begin to broach how terrible and terrifying it must be to storm beaches in France and to have young boys hear the sound of pop pop pa pa pop pa 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 As the technologies of war mowed down, countless lives and beaches were no longer sandy, for they were bathed in blood. What's more, in the ancient world, we were much more uh, honorific in terms of our society, fighting for king and country, fighting for your God, fighting for the name of your family. This brought glory or shame. You and I in the modern West, we grew up in an individualist age where our authentic self-expression ends up becoming something that is very important. And so tragedy of tragedy, someone fallen in battle today is simply a tragedy for their life was cut short. But if you can get the distinction between the way we conceive of modern war and ancient war, then you can get into the mindset of a fellow I like to talk about named Ignatius of Loyola. Chances are you understand or remember part of that name. It's probably the second name, Loyola. You see, Ignatius was a Spaniard who ended up founding something called the Society of Jesus or the Jesuit Order, a very powerful order within the Catholic Church. Ignatius himself would write the spiritual exercises. Theologians and priests and ministers and monks would go through these spiritual exercises. Seminarians would do them. People on pilgrimages would take them a part of their journey. Spiritual directors would direct them. People under direction would go through them. This has shaped so much of the spirituality, Protestant and Catholic alike, of the Western world. Since the 15 and 1600s, Ignatius left his stamp and mark on the world. Loyola and the Jesuits were also interested in education. They shaped the way we think of education, which is why you can find so many universities with the name Loyola attached to it. Loyola Marymount, there's Loyola in Maryland. My brother, a deacon here in this space this morning, went to Loyola University in Chicago, Illinois, where that dear sister nun still watches her team play basketball every March. And God, would you let them win one before she goes? But before Ignatius of Loyola became Ignatius of Loyola, he was like most young men in his town. He was ready for battle. He lived in an era and in a time where going to battle was, well, basically something that was going on all around him. And quite excitedly, he was going off to war. And in 1521, he fought in the Battle of Pamplona. He was going to go get his glory. He was going to go have his honor, and he was going to bring it home to his hometown and to his people. But in that battle of Pamplona, a cannonball shot across the battlefield, bowling over men and injuring Ignatius' leg, leaving him halted. All of his striving, all of his reaching, all of his machinations for glory and honor put down. In exchange, he got a bed of convalescence. He was to lay and heal and strive no more. And for Ignatius, the world had done passed him by. While he laid in his bed of convalescence, dreaming of the world where he could go out and define himself, make his mark, he begged, Somebody, please, somebody, please bring me the books of old, the books that recorded the Journeys and adventures of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. I want to read the books of glory. I want to read the books of honor. I want to read about the chivalric code of the knights. That's what he patterned his own passion and desire off of. I don't know really why, but no one brought him those tomes. Instead, another tome came to his bedside. Do you know what it was? It was the lives of the saints. He would read about godly men and women through the ages who quite courageously would stand up for God, would stand up in the light in dark places, who did battle, but not a battle of violence, but a battle of the Spirit to bring the wrong places to ruin and bring right in their stead, to bring justice where there was injustice, to bring love where there was discord. And a lot of times these saints died for what they did. And it was there in his bed of convalescence where he could not move, where he had to stay cloistered away. He read new stories and they began to shape his imagination for his own life. For four months, I've been away from you all. For four months, I've had a very small life. And for four months, I've looked for friends to teach me what it means to follow Christ. When I was forced into the quiet, and I found St. Ignatius of Loyola, And perhaps the only thing that we share in common is that I too had a moment where I couldn't strive anymore. And I had to sit with it. It was at the end of last summer, and I was doing some premarital counseling for a couple who's in this very sanctuary right now. I got up that morning on Saturday to go to meet them at Goldberg's Jewish Deli. I threw on a shirt of mine, and that shirt, it was rather tight, uncomfortably so. And it didn't make sense because I worn it a couple days or weeks before, or whatever, and it was fine. The counseling session went really well and it was continuing on. So he said, Let's go back to my house and we'll sit out in the patio and we'll continue on. And so we do that. And I noticed that the chair I was sitting in was really uncomfortable. I didn't like it none. And so I snuck off to the bathroom and I pulled up my shirt, and what I saw was basically water retention around my midriff. And it was weird. It had collected in strange ways and places, very alien around my entire midsection. And this was at the end of August, and I thought to myself, that's not good. I don't like that. But it could probably wait till I go see the doctor in October. You see, I've been avoiding the doctor. I could give you the reasons I avoided the doctor. I could tell you that I've had good doctors and they all retired on me, and so there's some trauma there. I could tell you that I have a bit of a phobia of the doctor. Uh, I I could tell you that there was nothing really wrong with me going on, so I just kind of let the doctor visits kind of slide. All of these things were true, but it doesn't really matter the great sin that I think I was committing was that I wasn't taking care as a good steward for the health of my body for I hadn't seen a doctor in 5 years. And so I carried this excess weight around for a few days. That Sunday I came in to preach. I bought a new suit and the new suit I wore the week before fit like a glove now it could hardly fit. So I wore my robe around church everywhere I went even when I wasn't preaching just so you wouldn't notice. On Tuesday or Wednesday, I came in the office and I told someone here how uncomfortable I felt and they said, dear, I think you need to call a doctor. Well, I hadn't had a doctor and I was waiting till October near my birthday to see a doctor. Uh, No real reason, just, you know, going to put it off. So I call up one of the members of our church who knew of a doctor and I said, do you still have access to this doctor? And he said... Sure thing. And as we're on the phone, he texts said doctor. By the way, this is my privilege. Because that doctor called me within a minute. There are people without access to health care, and I could get it so easily given to me. And I wasted it for so long. At any rate. The doctor calls me within a minute and says, what's going on? I tell him, he says, I need you to come to my office right now. You either have heart failure, liver failure, or kidney failure. So I get in the car and I drive the 20 minutes to his office and I call Colleen, my wife, and she goes to meet me there. And by the time I left here, or from the time I left here to walked into his office, things had changed in my body even more. I looked like a lightning bug when I got there. I was glowing. And I don't know about St. Paul. It says that he had scales on his eyes. I don't know what scales are like having them in your eyes. Is it jaundiced? I don't know, but my eyes, they look like lemons. And I walked into the room, and the doctor walked in the room, and he goes, all right, you're in liver failure right now, pal. Let's send you right downstairs to the emergency room. He told me to call my staff and make plans. That was a scary phone call, by the way. I didn't know what to do. So I called up and down the hallway and I got Sarah and Dee Stone together. And I remember asking him to handle all these odds and ends. And, and I had like a whole list of things to deal with. And I remember them saying, we'll figure it out, don't you worry. Oh, but one more thing, you gotta do this. One more thing, you gotta do that. You know, so obsessed was I with making sure things were done. No, no, don't worry. And then I blurted out with tears, I love you. Because the truth be told in that moment, I wasn't sure if I was going to die or not. So they carted me down to the hospital and from there, everything's a blur. And sometimes I think that when we go through things like this, God is merciful with us and doesn't let us remember the stupid stuff we say when we're in such a state so we won't be embarrassed later. As I said a lot of stupid things, apparently I began to hallucinate, which is remarkable because I could have hallucinated 20 minutes before on the drive to the hospital, but I didn't. Thank you, Lord. I was sitting there, I'm told, in the hospital room, and at some point I start raising my voice at my children to be quiet. Marcella Ruby, knock it off, be quiet. And Colleen turns to me and goes, Marcella and Ruby aren't here, honey. They're in Illinois. I don't know if that's funny or if that's a sad confession of what kind of father I am. Things were a bit strange. You know they're strange when the doctor comes in the room and you begin telling the doctor all about your symptoms. And I think I'm sounding really eloquent. I just think I am making the most sense you've ever made in your life. And the doctor looks at you and then looks at your wife and goes, I'm gonna to talk to your wife now. Can you tell me what's going on? Because when you sound eloquent in your brain and the doctor thinks you sound like this, and I don't know. Sometimes I think that God gives us a reprieve because Learning that you fell down steps or tried to drive to the store and sneak out of the house or that you ran into all the fruit stands at the store because the only way your wife can keep control of you is to take you into the store because you're going to drive yourself anyway. is just a little too much to bear. One thing's for certain is that was the beginning of knowing that I had to stop and I had to lay on a bed of convalescence, and the world was going by. All the things I had planned to do, all the things I yearned to do, all the things I was dreaming about doing, they weren't happening, folks. There is something more to contend with. And so I look for friends like Ignatius to show me what it looks like to be faithful in these stunted moments, these darker moments, these moments when you don't have a lot of choice. Along the way, I turn my attention to St. Paul, which we read about this morning from the book of Acts. Here in this story, we have a character by the name of Saul. Saul's basically a religious elite for the people of God. It's like he went to the greatest seminary and he's a theologian, and guess what? He's a citizen of Rome. He's got all the street cred imaginable And it's his job to lead the people of God to ever-increasing faithfulness to God's ways. And so Saul goes about all the land looking for people to teach and so on. And now he's on a special mission, it seems, to go after folks who have given an inordinate love and affection to their rabbi named Yeshua, you and I know him by the name of Jesus. You see, these Jewish folks have followed Jesus, thinking that Jesus is a little bit more than just a teacher. He's, in fact, the Messiah of God. And so Saul goes around the countryside finding these folks and persecutes them for their faith, even to the point of meeting a young Stephen and seeing that young man martyred. By stoning, he was killed for his devotion to Jesus. And as we pick up the tale, he's riding along on journey, and then something happens. A bolt of the divine breaks into his mundane experience. He hears the utterance of an apparition. It goes in through his ear and right down to his heart, and it knocks him on his backside. And on the backside, as he is disoriented, he hears from Yeshua, he hears from Jesus, and Jesus basically says, Saul, why are you picking on me? Saul, why do you want to be on the mat with me? Why do you want to go toe-to-toe with me and my people? Interesting for Saul, because now he has to begin to very painful process of rethinking everything he thought he knew he's told that he's going to go through an experience he doesn't eat or drink for several days he's blinded but there's going to be some faithful to come get him and lead him into this community and it's all going to be very challenging for old Saul in fact it's going to come with the name change they're going to He's going to go by the name Paul later on. And whenever you read in Scripture about a name change, you want to think about it more than just uh, the, the notion of a sound associated with your name. Name is your character. He's going to go through a character change. An identity crisis is happening on Paul's backside here in the field. In that moment, Begins the journey for old Saul to Paul, where he's going to spend time reimagining everything he thought he knew. Now, a lot of people read this and think, oh, great, it's easy. You just have a moment with Jesus, an encounter. And like that, Jesus has got a job for you. you got purpose, and your life's going to make a lot of sense. In fact, if you're lucky enough, you're going to be like old Saul, who becomes Paul, plants churches, and writes most of the New Testament." If you're lucky enough, you're going to be a giant of the faith. Other people read the book of Acts and other passages in Acts and read some of Paul's New Testament letters, and they do some math and think, you know, actually, it looks more like Paul, after this moment, spends about three to three and a half years doing nothing, studying reimagining the First Testament in light of Jesus. Finding the inspiration to write what we call the New Testament or the Second Testament, these letters to instruct first century Christians in the way of Jesus. Not as separate from that First Testament, but as a continuation of. Three and a half years, let's say, and he is asked to be quiet. Have you ever asked a preacher to be quiet? It doesn't normally go well. When I was a kid, we used to have the preacher over for lunch about once a month, and the worst was when he prayed before a meal. No, I take that back. That was the second worst. The first worst was when he looked at my little brother Joel, who was about this big at the time, and he would say, how about it, Joel, I'll call and you hang up. That meant that the preacher would start the prayer and my brother would end it, theoretically. But neither one of them knew how to end a prayer. In conclusion, 17 times in conclusion. It's hard for us old preachers to be knocked on our backside, to be put in a bed of convalescence, to be told to be quiet to look again at yourself, and to ask yourself the question, is everything I'm striving for, is everything I'm working for, is all that I'm passionate about leading me to where I need to go or not? It was hard finding out I couldn't do much, but it got harder. That first week, the doctor said that all my numbers were going in the right direction, and I thought, great, I'll take a week or two off. I'll come back. I got too much to do. I got ideas. I got a new staff member to bring on. We got things. We got to go, baby. We got to go. And I started spiraling. I bet you didn't know that I walked with a cane. I had to go down steps like this. Took about six weeks for me to walk a third of a mile. i go out on a walk because I, I, I needed to get my energy up and I didn't have time to waste. That's what I, that was what I told myself, I don't have any time to waste. And I see my dad creep outside when I go on a walk. He'd sit in the van and wait for me to come walking around up the hill, just a little loop. He'd come pick me up and say, get in. So I had nothing, just had nothing. But that's when things were getting good. Before they got good, they were bad. You see, I spent most of my days laying in sweatpants and hoodies with wool socks underneath the covers with the heater on outside in August and September, freezing cold, sleeping most of the day. My friend called me once. I remember I was lying on this patio couch. My parents just watching me as I basically slept, and I was talking to him. I was really eloquent. I remember being very eloquent with him. And at some point, he said, Jared, and I go, yeah, what? And he said, you quit talking five minutes ago. He started snoring. In my dream, I kept talking, but I wasn't talking. He's got really strange. At night, I'd wake up, and I'd have to go use the facilities, but it would take me 20 minutes to stand up, you know. I got this pain in my legs. And, And to get up, it felt like, I just say, it felt like having an elephant step on my foot, like I could not move. And this happened for about a week, and then I was laying on the couch, and my wife and my parents were looking thinking, this isn't good, he's circling the drain. And so they called the doctor. We were messaging through an app all the time, but now we called her and she said, get into the emergency room now. I found out that was the second time I almost died because it wasn't just my liver that was failing, but my kidney was in kidney failure as well. Both my kidneys were in kidney failure. So I was in a hospital for over a week, and uh, the kidneys came back because they found out that I was carrying infection, and once they got the infection treated, the kidneys sprung back, so that was good. But Now came the question of when I could get out and manage my own self, and I was just hell-bent for leather to go back to work. But I had... Minister friends stop in along the way telling me I needed to take this seriously. Including our regional minister Denise Bell, she sat me down and she said, Jared, you, you almost died here. You, you need to take the time. She said, do you trust Colleen? For those of you I don't know, that is my wife. I said 100%. She said, do you trust Bo Howard, who's the chair of the board of the church? And they were talking about A medical leave, so do you trust Bo Howard? And I said, Yes. And then she said, Do you trust Jesus? And I said, even more than the other two. She goes, Good, if you trust God, then what are you worried about? Now that's a really interesting question to ask anybody, let alone a minister. Do you trust God? What's the answer supposed to be, church? Easy to say, but do you trust God? I don't think you know until the screws are put to you. She said, if you trust God, then you're not going to worry about what's going to happen. If you trust God, then you know people have your back. If you trust God, then you know that God's going to do something with this. If you trust God this, if you trust God that. And in my mind, because I had all kinds of... Pre planned responses. I had a lot. Yeah, but, well, what ifs? And she just kept looking at me saying, Do you trust God? Think so. Then take the time, let your body heal. But know that salvation is not just for your soul, it's for your body, it's for your mind. Let your holistic health begin. And so I did. I, I started talking to this therapist about processing these two near-death experiences. That's something. I had a hard time watching church services after a while, you know. That's... When I'd watch a service here, I felt sad. So I saw a spiritual director. I still see a spiritual director, and you know, he led me to all kinds of practices and exercises of lectio divina, uh, praying the scriptures. And at some point, he told me to do something I thought was sort of, kind of sort of cheesy. The director said to me in, in an office at another church here in town. He said. I want you to imagine. Now, this is when I'm I'm walking a lot more and able to. I walk around Chastain Park. It's about two and a half mile loop. And sometimes I'd walk two and a half miles, and some days I'd walk ten miles. It just depended on what I needed to work out, because I needed to work a lot of demons out. And so I'd be walking, and he'd say, "I want you to imagine as you're walking that you're walking next to Jesus." Now. I'm a preacher, but I'm gonna tell you, that's kind of cheesy advice to me, except for it's not. So I, I remember one day I, I was walking and, and I do other cheesy things, so I can do that. And so one of the cheesy things I like to do is I, I put together a playlist of songs that would kind of motivate me, help me get through this. You know, like It's filled with songs like Tom Petty, I Won't Back Down. You know that song? Because I need to remind myself in all this that there's still fight in me. And I'm not going to stay down on the mat. I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep fighting. You got fight left in you, church? Do you got fight left in you? Well, I hope so. So I'm going to need to remind myself every day that I had a little fight left in me and I was going to play this music and just get myself in a headspace. And then all of a sudden, because the director directed me, I got to imagine Jesus is walking with me. Now, there's nothing more embarrassing than being caught walking around to music, getting pumped up, right? Like when someone catches you, you want to act like that wasn't happening. You're too cool for that. Imagine Jesus catching you, because you know when I when I hear music like that, and when I'm trying to pump myself up a little bit. I have delusions of grandeur. Do you have delusions of grandeur ever? You wouldn't preach about it, but you have them. Therein lies the difference between us. Yeah, man, I'm listening to this music thinking about what I'm going to do after I come out of these ashes. I, I have feelings about overcoming. I have feelings about raising my hands up in the face of an internal foe. I got all kinds of things that I'm thinking about, ways of organizing it in my head to make sense of it because it's hard to make sense of. Certainly genetics, certainly lifestyle choices, all these different things going on at once and my life's gonna change and I've gotta make sense of it. And so I'm walking around Chastain Park and I'm strutting a bit because the music's got one of those struts in it. And I'm I'm feeling myself. I'm feeling it, feeling the energy. I'm feeling the positive vibes. And then all of a sudden, the image that Jesus is walking right next to me pops in. And wouldn't you know it, you know what Jesus did? He made fun of me for it. He gave me one of those elbow ribbings. He put my head under his arm and did one of these. And then he pushed me a little bit. He didn't hurt my feelings, you know. It was more of a big brother, kind of like, you cheesy guy. And then he pulled me close. And then I had a moment of insight, a spiritual insight, and I'd like to tell it to you. Would you like to hear it? Here's the moment of insight. It Cost me a lot of money. It cost me a lot of weight. Almost dying twice. I hurt my wife, hurt my family, made everyone around me scared, had a lot of times of irritability, overeating, low-sodium diet. I'm through that now. To have this insight. God does not need me. God doesn't need me. Peachtree Christian Church doesn't need me. You don't need me. It just so happens that God wants me. It just so happens that God wants to use me. It just so happens that God wants to hug me. But God doesn't need me to fix anything. God just wants me, warts and all, injured liver and all. God will use me to lead God's people one way or another if God wants to, but God doesn't need me. God happens to want me. And can I tell you that God wants you to? A great lesson I've learned is that in life, we all go through moments of disruption. If you haven't gone through a disruption, gird yourself, you're going to go through one. And if you've gone through one, guess what? You'll go through more. Here's what you don't want. You don't want to go through a disruption in your life and have learned nothing for it. I think it was in the Tao Te Ching, which is an Asian text of spirituality that says that when the student is ready, the master or teacher will arrive. Now, I'm not telling you that God orchestrated all these events in my life so that I would learn a lesson, but what I am telling you is, if I do it right, it will have taught me a great, great deal. And if we do it right in our lives, when we come up against moments of pain and suffering and disruption, we will learn and we will be better for it. Is the real lesson is that out of disruption, God will do something new. Out of the disruption, God will do something new. Out of what has happened to you, if you let it, God will do something new. Out of what will happen to you, if you're open, God will do something new. And if you're in it now, keep on walking. Get up off the mat. You got more fight left in your belly. Keep walking that way because the road behind you is crumbling beneath your feet. There ain't no room to go back that way. The only direction is that way. And in that way, God wants to do something new with you. And so I leave you with a metaphor. It's a metaphor that's helped me out during a lot of this uh, convalescing as I've been hanging out with St. Ignatius and St. Paul and Zechariah and others. People forced to be quiet. We're going to start a motorcycle gang of preachers who can't, aren't allowed to talk. But I learned about this plant. It's called the Monstera deliciosa. Anybody ever have or seen or heard of one? Put your hand up. A couple of you. For some reason they call it a cheese plant which is sad to me because when I look at it I don't want to eat it but I want to eat some cheese also to me it's much more lovely than Swiss cheese what interesting about this plant is a lot of interesting There's an interesting history about colonialism all kinds of stuff but this plant grows in rainforests uh southern mexico and into south america central and southern south america and if you've ever been in any type of forest you know that there's always a a forest canopy that is to say the tops of trees and shrubberies and bushes that are up there reaching as they grow for sunlight because chlorophyll is important photosynthesis is important and all these things take place by nutrients from the sun and the leaves of these plants and so if you see a lot of Tree canopies, you will see them kind of growing in the direction of where the sun is, around other trees, around other plants, so that it can have life. But the monstera plant grows in these places, but it often grows it grows along the ground. And, and, and so it, it grows according to a principle called negative, phototropi, uh, pho- negative phototropism, which means that it will grow in dark and it will grow in shadow. Say negative phototropism. It's easy for you to say. It grows along the ground, but then it wants that light too, so it will attach itself to whatever it can find and climb up it looking for a bit of sun. You see, the metaphor for me is quite simple, yet it is so true. This plant of living in darkness in the undergrowth, perhaps where you don't want to be, will keep reaching and keep striving for the light above that it may live. I don't know what disruption you're in. I don't know if you've ever been halted. But the spiritual journey can be marked by your growth and reaching toward the light, no matter where you find yourself. And that is the shape of Christian hope. Remember, out of great disruption, God wants to do something new with you. I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.